Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Coming up on the payoff. Now, when I went after the speaker, I was doing it for you guys, right? I was Because I knew he was good recovery. He has a name in the recovery industry. And then I found out when I was talking to him, I was doing this for me. Because the guy is somebody who I could have grown up with and would have called my friend. Uh, he's the founder of Speak Sobriety. His name is Stephen Hill. Uh, he's a young guy in recovery. He's a best-selling author. He's a recovery coach, and he's also a fierce attorney. I'm not sure where he's licensed, either New York or New Jersey, but I can tell you he's a fierce attorney, and he advocates for treatment over incarceration. Stephen Hill has an incredible message, and I think if, if you're a parent and a son or daughter in your life is struggling with addiction, if you're a young person and you're struggling with addiction, you're on the fence, whatever, this guy is right down the pike for you. Stephen Hill, but first, Kevin Souza. Speak sobriety, and what, when when did you start that? June of two thousand sixteen. And 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 what is your sobriety date? September 30th, 2012. Okay, now how old were you when you got, you're a young guy right now. So how old were you when you got sober? 24. Wow. And uh, how, how, how hard was that? Like your message now, you speak a lot to kids in high schools and in, in, in colleges. And I tried to get sober when I was 27, 26. I just, I, it wasn't part of my story. You know, it took me, it took me, uh, it took me 10 years to get a year, um, and then I finally did. But what do you, what's your message to young guys that, uh, or, or, or women that come around uh, recovery and you know, are like, I can't imagine life without this? Yeah, I couldn't imagine life without it either. <laughs> I couldn't imagine going 24 hours without the use of drugs or alcohol, especially Towards the end, when I was addicted to opioids, Oxycontin and heroin, I could not picture a life without it. And, you know, I was at the point where it was it wasn't fun anymore. I'm not a zero tolerance speaker, so I'm not going to tell people that drugs are always bad. You'll always have a bad experience with drugs and alcohol. I don't think people get addicted to a substance because it always made them feel bad. But towards the end of my addiction, it was basically all bad. And I couldn't picture a life without it. But what happened was, is I was in a treatment program for long enough where my brain and my body started to heal to a point where I could see a life without drugs and alcohol. 
I couldn't see because my way of thinking was so backwards and so wrong and my whole my whole mind was just consumed by my next high and making sure I had money and substance for my next high. And so what I needed was time for my brain and my body to heal so I could start thinking clearly again. And I needed to have some faith at the beginning that this was a possibility. I think we look at mental health and physical health very differently in this country where, you know, I, I always give the example of when I was 19, I flipped off a cliff on a four wheeler and I broke my leg. And so I compound fractured my femur, you know, biggest bone in the body snapped in half out of my leg. It was about a year long recovery. I mean, you know, the injury happens, 911, rush to the hospital, emergency surgery in the hospital for two weeks because of risk of infection, wheelchair, brutal physical therapy, crutches, walk, jog, run, right? It, it takes a while. And it's the same thing with addiction. It's a brain disease. The longer you use, the worse the substance, the longer it takes, the harder it is to recover. And, you know, I had to go into detox first. Then I had to go into inpatient. Then I went into a, an extended care program with a lot of oversight, a little less oversight, very little oversight, then started life skills, work, school, gym, nutrition, relationships. I mean, I had to learn how to live life all over again, and that's how I was able to get it. But that doesn't come in a day or in 28 days. <laughs> uh, we can get more into that. Yeah, we, yeah. we sure will because my story too is – you know, 28 days wasn't enough. And I, I was lucky. I had the gift of desperation. I was done 28 days. And they told me to go, you know, they were like, hey, dude, you, you need to go somewhere else. You know, you don't have a job. You have a ter you have terrible relationships. You don't have any money. Like, there's really no reason why you shouldn't go somewhere else because we're giving you the opportunity. And I don't know what happened. Well, I do know what happened. I just started to follow suggestions. And I, like you said, I had a little faith. I said, okay. And then I went to a recovery house for another five months after that I lived with another sober guy for another year and a half I because I, like you man and I want to get into your story now but I went pretty I went pretty deep into the wilderness and it doesn't matter how old you are um, no. you can still go very deep as, as your story is is a real indication of that you grew up um, a, a good family yeah, what would you say upper middle class uh, upper class area and your exposure to alcohol and drugs comes when you're, I guess, eighth grade, ninth grade. What happens? How does that evolve and start? So I struggled with mental health a little bit growing up. I had ADHD and I was a risk taker. I couldn't sit still. I struggled in the classroom. But where I found my confidence and my self-esteem was in athletics, particularly ice hockey and even more so lacrosse. I was a very good lacrosse player and I made the JV lacrosse team as an eighth grader. So my school district, six through eight, well actually at the time it was seven and eight was in the middle school and then nine through 12 was in the high school. Where did you grow up? I grew up in, outside of Philadelphia and I feel I like- Rockland County, New York in Suffern, which is like 30 minutes north of New York City. Okay, cool, cool, yeah. That's where I grew up and and so I made the JV lacrosse team as an eighth grader and I'm in a completely separate building during the school day and then I'm getting bussed over the high school and I'm on a team with freshmen, sophomores, and even a few juniors. And I heard a lot of them talking about drinking, about smoking, going to parties. And I was curious. I was definitely the type of student that was drawn to that. 
And so the seed had been planted. And as soon as I got into high school, that everything changed for me. In your experience, by the way, you, you mentioned not to stereotype, but lacrosse and ice hockey. Historically, those are two groups of, of young men who go pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know. I know. And, and I, I really try not to, to do that, but you are correct. Yes, yeah. historically. And, you know, and I even say it to guys when I speak at high schools. Just recently, I spoke at a high school on Long Island, and this kid comes up to me and says that he's uh, playing lacrosse. I believe it was at Delaware. And I'm like, you know, you got to really be careful because there's a, a culture amongst lacrosse and ice hockey players, other sports as well, but you are correct. Um, ice hockey and lacrosse players who go pretty hard and some of them experience some pretty major consequences as well as a result of going that hard. But And, and your, your consequences kick off when, you know, you start to get curious and then I'm guessing you start to experiment. And, and, and what happens there? How does the brain chemistry switch when we're exposed to this this feeling? Right. So what happened for me was I, I went to this first party. It was kind of a tradition my, my, in my school at the time, my high school, where school would start either on the first or second Wednesday in September. And at that time, the seniors would throw a big party for the whole school on the first Friday. And so I had these older friends and I went up there with a few of my boys that were walking up to this party. It was like the back entrance to this park. There are a few other houses nearby. People are playing beer pong, flip cup. Like it just seemed like a really good time. And that was the first time I was introduced to alcohol and nicotine. And so I had my first beer that night. I, I smoked a cigarette that night and it wasn't like a moment where I was like, wow, I need to do this all the time. I went into it the intention of trying it once, maybe doing it every once in a while. I, I wasn't really sure what was going to happen. And nicotine and alcohol didn't, the first time I used it, didn't give me the feeling where I'm like, wow, I need this and I'm addicted all the time. So I, I started drinking every once in a while and then I found marijuana. Now, uh, let me I, ask you, I, let me interject real quick. Are you on uh, ADHD drugs? Are you on Adderall? Currently? No, were you at the time? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I was. I was at, well, freshman year, no. I actually, I just stopped taking them. I started taking ADHD medication when I was in second grade. Yeah, me too. When I was like in third grade. Yeah. Yeah, second grade. We can get into all that. You know, <laughs> yeah. if, if amphetamines can forever change the brain chemistry of an adult, what is it doing to a second grader to prime them for addiction later in life, right? I, yeah. I, I can't Sure, I'm not a doctor, so I'm going to get too deep into that. But I did start out in second grade with amphetamines. I actually stopped right before high school. I hated the way it made, made me feel, and I don't take them anymore today either. Let I me tell you something, dude. And, I, you know, it's like wait till somebody is telling your story. That's the my, my first experience with a mind-altering drug. I, looking back in retrospect with, with clarity was – Take, I remember taking you know Ritalin when I was in second grade, third grade, and just kind of feeling different a little bit. When I look back at the whole body of work, I can't say there was one instance, but man, it, it changed me a little bit, I think. And, and I felt like, I don't know if this was your situation, early on I felt like, okay, I got to take something to do something. I have to take something to be my best. Yes, I need a pill to fix my problem. Yep. That's, that's the, the mindset that I was in. And especially when they are constantly adjusting my medication 
and different names, different brands, different milligrams. And I understand the doctor was trying to find what was going to work best for me, but I don't think it had that effect. I think in my brain, I'm hearing that we need to, we, there has to be some type of pill to fix my problem. And this is what we're searching for is the perfect pill, the perfect milligram that's going to make me okay. And that's what I got from all that medication adjustment over the period of time that that's how it registered in my brain. And, and so, yeah, that was my first exposure, but I didn't, you know, really fall in love with substance right away with alcohol and, and nicotine just didn't really do it for me. Um, yeah, I think I gotten kind of a little bit nauseous from the nicotine the first time I used it. Alcohol, I didn't really drink that much, but the first time I got high from smoking marijuana, I believe it was like my second time using it. That feeling, I was like, okay, I could do this. And what I would do is I would try and set boundaries for myself. I would say, okay, I'm only going to drink and smoke on special occasions. Then I'd be like, all right, I'm only going to do it on the weekends. And then I'd be like, all right, I'm only going to do it during the week if I don't have a game or a test. Then I'm doing it every day during the week. And then somebody offers me a line of cocaine. Somebody offers me a Xanax. I'm going to do it just this one time. I'm going to do it just in special occasions. And I would just keep setting these boundaries for myself. And I would just cross every single line I set until there basically was no lines left to cross. That's the way it happened to me. And you know, it, it didn't get out of control right away. One of the worst things I think that could have happened to me was freshman year. There wasn't really any negative consequences on paper to show this was a problem. I did it every once in a while. I did okay in school. I excelled really well in sports, good family life, a lot of friends. So I'm not going to be the guy with the problem. But then sophomore year is when things start to change. I started selling marijuana for one of my older friends, and now I'm smoking more. I'm developing a reputation. I'm kind of just really getting stuck in the whole lifestyle of it. Uh, who my identity, my identity changed. I wasn't just the athlete anymore. I was the athlete and the drug user, and then the drug dealer as well. And then the athlete slowly started going away until basically I was just known as drugs. Did drug you use, did you find use. yourself? And when I say functioning, you know, were you able to smoke weed, go go to lacrosse practice or smoke weed, go go back to school or, you know, did you did you tell yourself, OK, I'm I'm, I'm I can operate on this. This is actually an assist um, to my personality. Year. Yeah. Freshman year, I was able to because I didn't really do it that much. But by sophomore year, um, I, I was convincing myself that I could manage it, but it was very clear that I could not. I was the first, at least what the coach told me at the time, he said I was the first player he knows that made junior varsity lacrosse as an eighth grader, but didn't make varsity as a sophomore. I showed up to the tryouts, another one of my friends in recovery who has 11 years, he was at that tryout, he was two years older than me, and he remembers it so well. Drills would come, and I would just be like third or fourth in line, I would just walk to the back of the line. I had just lost my motivation. It's just something in me changed. I didn't I didn't lose it in hockey the same way I did in lacrosse. And I think it was because hockey was such a huge part of our school culture. You know, everybody went to the games on Fridays. And so I just wanted to be part of that so much. But then sophomore year, I had lost interest in, in lacrosse. And 
I was on the J- I was a leading scorer on the JV lacrosse team as a freshman, and I was like barely even playing on the JV lacrosse team as a sophomore. That just shows you like how I was going in the wrong direction so quickly. And it's a consequence. Yes. We'll get back to this conversation in a second, but right now, a word from our sponsors. From the host of the popular podcast, The Only One in the Room, Stash by Laura Cathcart Robbins is a propulsive and vivid memoir about the journey to sobriety and self-love amidst addiction, privilege, racism, and self-sabotage. Best-selling author Holly Whitaker calls it an irresistibly delicious story. And MacArthur Foundation fellow and best-selling author Kiese Lehman says Stash is emotionally riveting. Buy Stash by Laura Cathcart Robbins now, wherever books are sold. Hey there, homeowners. Is it time to give your yard a complete makeover this summer? Villani Landshapers, a local family-owned business, has been transforming landscapes for more than 20 years. Villani Landshapers specializes in landscape design build, retaining walls, outdoor living spaces, and so much more. Request your free consultation today and check out their gallery of residential work at villani-landshapers.com. 100%. It's a consequence. A lot of times, you know, there's a reason, you know, whether we're, you know, in the band or whether we're an athlete that might be special like yourself – we, we have these gifts that we can tap into that can build our self-esteem, and alcoholism and drug addiction erodes, erodes all that. Um, and and it, steals, it steals from our self-esteem, or, or we give it away, however you want to put it. What, when, did, when did opiates come into your life? Ar- around this point or later on? Senior year. So junior year, I, I, sh- I, I tried cocaine and Xanax. Uh, I had gotten kicked off the school hockey team. Why did you got- get kicked off the team? I, so I had, um, during one of the tryouts, I had slashed this freshman kid pretty hard. I mean, it's hockey, get over it. Right. (laughs) But the dad cried at the school about it. And then, um, I got sent away for a few weeks for like anger, anger management. I came back and my first game back because I just come off a suspension. I didn't get any playing time. So after the first period, I went in the locker room, took off my helmet. I threw it across the locker room, threw my stick. And my coach came up to me and was like, if you don't want to be here, just leave. And I was so angry and I had already relapsed at that time. And so I ended up just ripping off my equipment, putting on my clothes, storming out, calmed down after the game was over, went up to him. I apologized, but he was like, doesn't matter. That was it. You're, you're done. That was the last straw. And so I then, uh, if I wasn't kicked off the team before, well, I made sure I was now. I proceeded to scream at him i threw my varsity jacket at him i cursed at him and so then i was kicked off the team 10 days out of school suspension and then i just dropped out of high school you dropped out of high so, school yeah dropped out of high school um as a junior but my parents intervened very quickly and i was one of those kids who woke up at 5 a.m on the couch to two ex-marines standing above me dragging me out of my house in the middle of the night and sending me to a wilderness program so your parents, yeah. how were they? How were they along for this whole ride? How did they respond to it? Um, what were you putting them through? So I was putting both my 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 parents and my brothers through a lot, and they did everything they possibly could to get me the help that I needed. But I just got deep into it so fast, like it happened really fast. By the end of my freshman year to the start of my sophomore year, I became a completely different person. 
And by the time I was a junior in high school, I don't even know who I was as a freshman. That person was long gone. And so I'm so deep into this. Um, I had gone to this wilderness program. I came back. Uh, I relapsed not too long after I came back. And then senior year is when I found the opioid painkillers. And, and by the way, the, the wilderness program, was that like an outward bound type thing? Or was that... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. kind of like a therapeutic style boot camp. That's how I describe it. Was it you effective? Know, the, Did it plant a seed or? Yeah. So when I came home, I was I was sober. I was doing the right thing. I was kind of shy and timid, which wasn't my personality. But there was a home contract that was made. And I had to follow all these rules and I was following all the rules and I was sober. And I'm getting ready to start lacrosse season my junior year. I'm back at the high school. And the administration was like, no, you can't play. Why? They're like, because of cursing off my my hockey coach. Oh, okay. They decided to suspend me from sports for the entire school year. And that was such a huge blow to me. I mean, that was like basically my, my only positive outlet, my only area of self-confidence and self-esteem. And it was taken away. And so I didn't know what to do after school. So instead, I hung out with my older friends um, and they were just using drugs. And so I relapsed. And then senior year is when I found the opioid painkillers, leftover prescription from somebody getting their wisdom teeth pulled, tried that, and I was instantly addicted. How quickly did that turn? You know, like, because once I started to do painkillers, I I just felt like it was this gift. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I did it as much as I possibly could after that. And it wasn't like that with alcohol or with marijuana. No. It didn't, it didn't have the same effect. And what's so interesting about it, I, I always share this experience when I speak at, at any audience, and I took it with two of my other friends. We smoked marijuana first, and we each took a few of these oxys, and one of my friends started throwing up in like 15, 20 minutes. He made him nauseous, never did it again. Another one of my friends liked it, ended up developing a problem later in life, but me, I remember walking in the back of math class, I sat down, I put my head down, and then all of a sudden this feeling came over me and I'm like, this is amazing. Like, this is what I want. I tracked down my friend who looked terrible because <laughs> he was throwing up in the bathroom for like, people react to this stuff so differently, right? Like I remember my grandmother had really bad back pain at the end of her life and, and she could not take opioids because she would just throw up instantly. But I remember I walked out, I tracked down my friend and I said, here's 50 bucks. Give me the rest of that pill bottle. <laughs> Yeah, that makes absolutely perfect sense. Is Was there addiction in your family uh, yes. going back? Yeah, so I have three brothers and two parents, you know, mom and dad. And none of them had problems, but my father's side has a lot of addiction. Um, all of his siblings have it. His father had it. So it definitely runs on my dad's side of the family for sure. Yeah, and so you, you get involved with opioids. And how quickly does your life start to spiral out, out of control? Pretty quickly. So uh, what happened was is, is senior year of high school, I didn't have access all that much. So I think it would have spiraled out of control right away, but I didn't have access to it. The only time I was really getting it was like when somebody got their wisdom teeth pulled or there was a surgery, something like that, and we would track it down and we would find it and steal it. So I didn't have access on the street level yet. So senior year, it didn't get out of control right away. I graduated high school. I went to a community college. I failed out in two months, moved back home in October 
and that was the beginning of the end. I moved back home. I'm 18 years old. I'm not in school. I'm not working. And now I had access to Oxycontin on a pretty large level. I had Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycontin. I mean, it was just everywhere. And so now I started dealing drugs on a higher level. And then all of a sudden things are starting to get progressively worse. And you tell me you're 18. And at the outset of this conversation, you get sober when you're 24. So we're talking about I'm six years of this craziness. The first time I tried opioids, I was the beginning of my, my senior year. So I have a September birthday. So I was 17 on my first use. And my last opioid use was a few weeks before my 25th birthday. So about six, seven years. Yeah. I I was, I went through this. What do you tell kids, young kids that you talk to, to look out for when they're 17, 18, and they start to experiment, you know, because some of the kids, when you're sitting there talking to a thousand kids in high school, you know, the odds are that, you know, obviously odds way are that, you know, they're not all going to be alcohol, alcoholics and addicts, but how, how do you, how do you speak to them and how do you get them aware about this situation? So one thing too, that we really need to be aware of today is that if the landscape of drug use today with the presence of fentanyl was going on 10 years ago when I was still using, there's no way I would have made it out alive. Yeah. There's no way. So that's a big difference between when I was using and today is the presence of fentanyl, right? And so a lot of this comes down to to risk and choice. You know, we talk about mental health, right? If you're someone who struggles with depression or anxiety, you're more likely to develop an addiction. If you're someone who has trauma in your life, you're more likely to develop an addiction. If you're someone who has the genetic predisposition, you're more likely to develop an addiction. And so it really comes down to risk and choice. And you know, the earlier you start using, the more likely you are to develop an addiction. But to me, the most important piece of this is self-confidence, self-esteem, and building a life that's worth protecting creating a life that's worth living well, a life that's worth staying sober for. I didn't get sober to be miserable. It works for me on the recovery side, and it should work for them on the prevention side. You work so hard for something. You work so hard in your academics, your athletics, your health, your wellness, your relationships. You can throw it all away in one night. One night. Yeah. It's crazy to think about it, right? Like, I went back, I I worked... I worked on my recovery so hard for the first two years. I went back to school. I finished college in about three years. Then I finished law school in three and a half. I built this whole speaking company. And think about it today. If I got behind the wheel of a car drunk and high and I crashed and got arrested, I would lose everything all in one night. All that, that's all it takes. you know. Or, or you have a situation, an argument or a fight with somebody and the police come and you end up in jail. It really is so fleeting. But and that's what addiction, that's that's what it does to us. You can be sober for, you know, for four or five years, and then you get away from recovery. You stop, like you said, you stop that healing process and that rehabilitation process. That I believe I'm still, I'm still in today, right? Whether I'm jonesing for a drink or a drug, I'm still not a finished product. And the place no. I have to go is talking to dudes like you, recovery to do esteemable things, build my self-esteem, and I'm moving further away from a drink or a drug, not not closer to it. You mentioned, you know, you start to evolve 
with with alcohol and drug use, and then you get involved in heroin. How how, how deep does that go for you? So I didn't use heroin as much as I would say most of my friends or peers that were involved in opioids as at the same level as I was during that time. And the main reason why was because I had a ridiculous amount of access to Oxycontin and then towards the end, the uh, 30 milligram Roxy. Because you're dealing? Because of my dealing and the people I just came into contact with. I had a few people, one guy in particular, how he got his hands on the amount of Oxy I have no idea. Do you I have any? Do you have any idea? Do you have any? Like, how how was this stuff so readily available? So I, I could get a few a few ways it was readily available. One, there was no prescription drug monitoring program, so we knew people and we knew unethical, you could say even criminal doctors, who would basically prescribe this stuff pretty easily. And so you can go doctor shopping. You can go from one doctor to the next as long as you had some type of MRI or some legitimate thing that you can show them while you're in pain, they would prescribe you 120 oxy um, a month. And so do that with 10 doctors, you're at 1200, right? And that's for just one person. Yeah, He was getting multiple people to do this. Then there were some mom and pop pharmacies where I would literally get manufacturer bottles of oxy. It wasn't even in like a prescription to an individual person. It's the stuff that was going to pharmacies and I would end up with that stuff. Um, how some, some of the, the amount that I was getting at once though, I mean, it was, it was truly insane that, that you could do that. And so are you taking more than you're selling at this point? No, I mean, I was, I was, and only because I was selling so much. I mean, I, I, at the height of my addiction with Oxycontin, I would use 12 or about 12, 80 milligram pills a day, 10 to 12. Um, and then towards the end, when the Oxycontin pills were gone, I was using Oxycodone, um, the Roxy's, the blue 30 milligram pills, and I would do 30 30s a day. So I would do 900 milligrams a day. Um, but I was selling so many of them and it was just, it where was are we at, where are we at physically? Like, were you, were you starting to, I mean, you're 24 and I could tell looking at you now you're healthy as a horse, but like. At this point in time, are you are you starting to fail in certain like respects uh, of your physical health? Yeah, I mean, just it, it was just a disaster. I mean, like my nose, my whole nasal passage was all messed up. Um, I, my skin was like a grayish Gray, yeah. color. Uh, there was no life in my eyes. I mean, my stamina was at like absolute zero. My nutrition was at zero. Uh, if I wasn't using for 24 hours, I would get sick, violently ill, and it was it was just so bad. And and the first time I tried heroin was actually at 19. Um, I was selling marijuana, and I had this one guy who would always buy an ounce for me, and he gives me the money for it. And in the money, in the like the rubber band, it was like he said, "There's a gift in there for you." He said, "Only do a little bit." And so I look, and there's these two glassine envelopes, and I call them back, and I'm like, what is this? He's like, oh, you don't know? And I'm like, no, what is it? He goes, that's heroin. And I'm like, heroin? I'm like, I'm not doing heroin. 
And he's like, well, you are always buying Percocet off me. He goes, it's basically the same thing. He goes, it's just, it's a lot cheaper. And so he's like, just, you know, pour out one of those bags, do half of it and let me know how you feel. So I poured out half the bag. I did half of it and I was high the entire day. And I did that multiple times when I couldn't get it. Sometimes I would just buy it just for the heck of it. You know, even though I had the oxy, I would, yeah. I would buy heroin. Um, and so I, I, I was deep into both of them. One thing I never did, and I'm very grateful for, because it could have happened very easily multiple times, is I never used needles. I would snort them all the time. I, I came close a few times. One of my dealers was um, an IV heroin user, and he would make me shoot him up all the time. He would like hold the drugs hostage and tell me if I don't help him shoot up because he had all these collapsed veins that he wouldn't give me anything. And so he would make me like help him shoot up. Um, and it was just such a such a crazy way and just insane. Another lifestyle. day, at the, another day at the office at that time. But I, you look back I mean, now, you're like, what the? Yes, exactly. And. And you have like these very brief moments of clarity sometimes, even like during the throes of my addiction, I would have like these very brief moments where I would look at my life and be like, what are you doing? Like, what is going on? Like, I remember when I got arrested leaving Patterson, New Jersey, I went to an open air mm -hmm. drug market, bought drugs like in the heart of like a gang infested neighborhood got pulled over leaving there by unmarked car, plainclothes officers, uh, just like, the, and like I'm reading the, the, the police report and the, the summons and, you know, caught with 10 bags of heroin. And, and I'm like reading this. I'm like, what? Like, did I just get arrested with heroin? Who like, is this person? This, like, who is the, exactly. That's it. Who yeah. is this person? Yeah. From the beginning of your life. And, where where you came from and you know what your family have provided to this uh, you were you, you know and you were a sick guy you know you can become disgusted with yourself and all this but baseline you were just a sick dude who who needed to get well now what triggers you getting well we're talking about arrest we're talking about dealing drugs one one other thing i want to uh, ask you about what are your relationships like um romantically and 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 with 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 friends are they just a complete no. wreck Disaster. So I was the last relationship I had during my addiction, I believe, ended on my 22nd birthday. I lost 10,000. I haven't even gotten into gambling. I mean, that's, that's a whole that's a whole other thing. But I was a bookie. I was a gambler. Uh, and so I went to Las Vegas with my girlfriend at the time and I lost ten thousand dollars the blackjack table and then i had been lying to her that i wasn't using oxy i was so angry that i didn't even care i just broke it out right in front of her and so she broke out with me that night it was like on my 22nd birthday i lose i lose 10 grand i'm blowing oxy uh basically all of my friends had walked out of my life any friend that was still in my life was only there for one of two reasons that's drugs or gambling if you had taken drugs and gambling away from me i would have no one the only thing i had left was drugs and gambling and so if you took that away from me now i felt even worse at least i had an identity at least i had a purpose right everybody needs that and so 
my father, I remember when I was in treatment, brought me my phone bill from the 28 days I was an inpatient versus the month before I got arrested and when it went to go in. And one was like 40 pages long. And then this one was like one page and not even a full <laughs> page because no one had any, no one had any use for me anymore. How so, did you get into treatment? What happened? You know, what's the jumping off point for Stephen Hill? So I had gone to from 16 to 24. I went to one wilderness program. I think like seven 28 day inpatient programs, uh, a sober house, individual counseling, outpatient, AA, NA. And at 24 years old, I was worse than ever. And so I had convinced myself that recovery was not possible for me. Had you ever really wanted it in any of those periods of time and just, just couldn't get it or were yeah. ready? Yeah. There was a period of time where I tried the geographical solution and I moved to California because California was going to fix all my problems <laughs> and that didn't work. But I was on medication assisted treatment at that point. So I was taking Suboxone and I moved back from California out of the sober house back to New York. And I moved back really with the intention of staying sober and going back to school and trying to get my life on track. And I wanted to come off the of Suboxone because I was having like bad side effects from it. I remember I was like, I could never go to the bathroom. I couldn't urinate. I, I was constipated. And I also just felt like foggy from it. And I also didn't like the fact that I was so reliant on this substance. So I tried taking myself off of Suboxone and I got so sick from coming off of Suboxone, worse than dope and and oxy and so it was like this vicious cycle of using suboxone to get off heroin and oxycontin and using heroin and oxycontin to get off of suboxone so i had i, I really wanted it at some points and again i tell you like, i had these brief moments of clarity where it was almost like i was standing outside myself watching myself do things i did not want to do but i had no control to stop the show and so what really did it for me in the end was the criminal justice system. It somewhat worked for me. <laughs> I was arrested on felony probation on more felony drug charges. And so my probation officer, I was very lucky. I had one really bad probation officer in New Jersey and one really nice one um, in New York. And when I say nice, don't mistake her kindness for weakness, but she gave me the opportunity and said, you can go into jail or treatment, you choose. And so I only chose treatment because I didn't want to go to jail. So I didn't have like this, I, I had the gift of desperation a little bit, but I also didn't think that it was possible because I had failed at this so many times. And so what happened was, is I finally took suggestions. I always wanted to come out with my own treatment plan. Here's what's best for Steve. And my counselor had told me that I should get a tattoo of first thought wrong across <laughs> my forehead and to look in a mirror often. My that's brother, what, my brother's in recovery. He always, that's first thought wrong. That's his, uh, he that's always he says that. So he was actually my, my counselor. And at, at this inpatient program I had gone to, 
And then when I, he wanted me to go to extended care and I said, no, I got this. Then I came back to the same program nine months later and now he was promoted to the head of, you know, of a head of aftercare. So I go and see him and he's like, so you're going to listen to me this time. And I'm just like, I don't really have a choice because like, I'm going to go to prison if I don't, uh, I might even still go to prison if I do everything I'm supposed to do. So I was sent to a year-long extended care program in New Haven, Connecticut with three different phases. And it took me almost six months before I was going about my day. It was just before lunchtime. I remember I was walking in to eat lunch and I had thought to myself, I have not thought about drugs once today. And that was insane to me. I always woke up with the same thought process. Do I have drugs? Okay. If not, how am I going to get them? And then all of a sudden around month five or six, I didn't have that thought. And now I have this real second chance. So I started building a life for myself and things started to change for the better slowly. But at that point, what are you doing to build a life for yourself? So they started out so simple. I remember my first day at this, this extended care program, they had this thing called the continuing care plan. And we would always make fun of it. We're like, this stuff's a joke. But one <laughs> of the things was not a joke. And at the time, I, did, I had no idea how this was even relevant. But it says to set my alarm, wake up on time, make my bed, brush my teeth, take a shower, do my chores, and be ready for outpatient. And I'm like, all right, I can be ready for outpatient, but what does any of that other stuff have to do with staying sober? And then like, shut up and do it. I'm like, all right. And so I started getting in this healthy root, healthy morning routine. And I can tell you that to this day, a healthy morning routine and doing it mindfully can help you tremendously. How, how do you, how would you tell somebody to do it mindfully? to really take pride in what you're doing to say, all right, all right, I got up on time this morning, right? I set my alarm, I got up on time and I made my bed. Before I even walk in the shower or brush my teeth, I've already accomplished something. I'm starting my day off right. I'm going in, I'm brushing my teeth. I'm brushing my teeth well. I'm going in, I'm taking a shower. I'm putting on deodorant, I'm putting on some cologne, I'm putting on some aftershave. I look good, I smell good, I feel good. I'm going downstairs, I'm starting my day. Sometimes I'll even throw in a workout early in the morning before I do all of that. And so you can really start your day off really well. Now I do meditation, I did meditation today. Um, and it, it really helps me just in my whole mindset. I feel more accomplished, I feel more productive. And then that carries over into going to therapy, going to AA meetings, getting a job, going to school. Like it, you start doing this stuff mindfully and you just feel better about yourself you feel more accomplished you are more productive and now i'm starting to build this life for myself and so i went into phase two of this program and i got a part-time job but it wasn't even a paid job it was a volunteer job um, and then i was also going to school and just taking two classes and magically i had failed every college class <laughs> under the influence and now I got A's when I was yeah. sober. Uh -huh. It's crazy how that works, right? <laughs> and so then I get into the phase three part of the program and they made me a resident house manager, which was a paid job. 
And so I'm still resident of the program, but I'm watching over some of the guys in my house. I'm, you know, making sure they're doing their chores, that they uh, have their daily schedules, making sure they're going to school. Which, which by the work. way, for people who don't know, is a, it can be stressful and a lot of work. Yes. Um, and yeah. at times you probably feel like you're hurting cats. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I'm making sure people are, you know, coming home by curfew and I'm breathalyzing them. Sometimes even, you know, administering drug tests on the weekends. Uh, so I started doing all these things and, and all of a sudden I'm just like, I'm starting to feel better about myself. And, and what happened was, is I had these two felony cases pending in New York and New Jersey. And I went through this program and around month 11 of being in there, I found out that I was going to be offered a full-time job working at the treatment program after I left, that I could also take some night classes and that I was not going to prison and I was given a real second chance. And so when you found out you're not going to prison, what, what is your first thought? So my, my first thought was that I'm never going back to that life ever again because the gig was up. You know, I, I had, I had at 24 years old at the end of my addiction there, I, I had no job. I had no career. I had no money left. I had no drug or gambling connections that wanted anything to do with me because I had been arrested twice on felony drug charges. How much money do you think you spent on drugs and lost gambling collectively? God, I have no, it's a absurd amount. You know, okay. you just, yeah. you talk about, you know, not even, I actually got asked this question recently at a high school in West Virginia. And, and I, and I talked about both sides of it, about the amount of money you spend during your addiction. And then the amount of money you spend trying to get well, you know, with just detox, inpatient, outpatient, counselors, lawyer fees. I mean, just, you name it. It's absolutely absurd. So, you know, every you know dollar we spend in prevention saves us. I don't even know how much, but it's got it's an absurd amount of money. It will save our country for every person we prevent going down this road in the first place. What are some of the best preventative measures that you that you see and you try to instill? So one of the biggest things, like I said before, was building a life that's worth protecting. You have to have a life that's worth staying sober for. Working on self confidence and self esteem camaraderie of positive peers. You can't feel alone. You can't feel isolated. Those are some to me that some of the biggest things that you really need to emphasize and help people, young people in particular work on um, are those things, you know, building a life worth protecting, building self-confidence, self-esteem, supportive environment, positive peers, right. And just strength in numbers too. Like, you know, you, you go to a party, and there's 10 people you go with and nine of them are using drugs and alcohol. You're the only one who's not. Well, your chances of using went up a lot. But if you're with 10 people and only one person's getting high, your chances of using it pretty, pretty, pretty low. You'll feel a lot more comfortable being in a sober position, especially if you have those peers who are really helping you out. Right. They talk about it very simple. Right. People, places and things, the people you hang out with, the places you go and the things that you do. Be mindful of all three of those. Where did you get the gumption to go to, to go to law school? I mean, so you you you're working in in treatment, and then you decide you one you can because clearly you've got a nice tailwind as sobriety behind you, and then two that that, that you want to go. How, how did how did you get motivated to do this? 
So part of, so first of all, my father's an attorney, my older brother's an attorney, and my younger brother is an attorney. So okay. there's certainly a few lawyers in my family, um, but they don't work in criminal law in any way. They're corporate attorneys. They don't ever go into courtrooms or anything like that. So what really motivated me was one, I got arrested eight times and my experience with the criminal justice system, but two, Part of my job when I was working at that treatment program, they had this thing called driving jobs. So basically you can earn some extra money by driving a resident who had a court date. So, you know, guys come into treatment, a lot of people have pending criminal charges. Just because you're in treatment doesn't mean you can always miss your court date. So sometimes <laughs> kids had to leave treatment to show up to court. And so staff members would drive them to the courtroom. And so I was so interested in being in a courtroom and seeing cases and not being the defendant for once. And so I took every driving job I could and I was in courtrooms all over New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. And I just kept seeing the same thing over and over again. So many of these charges were related to drugs and alcohol in one way or another, right? DUI, possession, intent to distribute, committing other crimes in order to get money for drugs. And so, I thought to myself, the criminal justice system needs a lawyer in recovery who's been on both sides of the law. And so I needed to even go to law school. I didn't even have, a, I didn't even have a, an associate's degree at that point. So I had to go to college first and then even try and get into law school because of my criminal history. I had to take the law school admissions test. I mean, the whole thing, it was, yeah, it was a pretty big goal. Um, but it's the I'm only sure. thing that can get, get, get a former junkie through that is is good recovery and yes. and and you know the the confidence because you start first of all it's a lie that you're not good enough um and then you start to do things that are positive and like i mentioned esteemable and you start to live free and and you start to really there there's a there's a momentum that i've gotten from sobriety and recovery that i i never got uh through using alcohol and drugs and i thought that that was the answer uh, but I, I was propelled by sobriety and, and recovery. I want to ask you, I see, I see the wedding ring. How, how, do, how, do we, how do we make that happen? I mean, so this is a guy who his girlfriend dumps him in Las Vegas after he drains 10,000 and is ripping oxys in front of her. And now he's married. Uh, how did this come, come about? So I, so I finished college. Because I'm always interested about how guys get into relationships after. I don't think a couple things that aren't talked enough in recovery, and I know – you probably know this sex and money um, yeah. and, 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 and relationships, right? Romantic. So how do you reintegrate in the dating scene? A lot of, a lot of young guys, I'm sure you talk to, and I only say this cause this is how it was with me. You know, women and relationships kept me drinking and using for so long. Cause I, I didn't, I didn't know how I was going to be able to do that without this lubricant and this, you know, this assistance, uh, you know, did you find anything similar or what was your experience with that? Yeah, so I, well, first, when I first started dating after, well, I kind of broke the rules a little bit. Uh, when I was in treatment, you weren't supposed to date anyone yeah. at all. And so when I was at college, I met this girl who I was in my class and I had another friend, another you know friend of mine, one of my best friends in recovery, even still to this day. Um, we were in the same class together. These two girls were in that class. And so we kind of started, you know, sneaking out and, and seeing this girl, which was a little bit dishonest. You know, I don't, I certainly don't recommend it, but that's really how I started it. 
and you know we were pretty honest about our situation and um they didn't seem to care all that much but you know we weren't even able to really like you know go out with them a lot i mean I didn't really have access to my money because you know they were holding on the, this treatment program was holding yeah, on. Yeah, we get, I, I I was in, the, in a treatment program. They put it in an escrow account, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I didn't really and like what am I going to like say like oh like uh you know come over to my sober house <laughs> where you know we're getting uh you know we have a curfew and we have case mat like just I don't know. So we ended up just you know messing around with them for a few times and I tried online dating for a little bit. You know, it was just more of like a thing where like all the guys would sit around and would just swipe through their phones because we had nothing else to do. But I had then dated a girl for a while when I moved back home to go back to college. Um, that blew up my face, ended pretty badly, dated her for a few years. And so then I went into law school and I was single for a while and I was working on my book. A journey to recovery and i published it in may of 2018 which by the way we'll put the link in the show notes okay <laughs> and so uh the journal news had picked it up and so i was on the front page of the journal news and then they even did like a follow-up interview with me and so it was all over social media i just published a book and so people from my high school were sharing it uh on facebook especially it was all over Facebook and you know, I'm looking at like my Amazon sales, like they're going up and up and up and up and up and I'm getting all these messages, these direct messages on Facebook. Some of them are on Instagram as well. And some of them are just like, you know, wow, this is so great. You know, we, I'd love to see you talk to you. I have this going on in my life. I have that going on in my life. And then this one girl, um, Lauren messaged me. We had had a thing when I was a sophomore in high school and she was a freshman and then, you know, we went our separate ways and she was a nurse in Brooklyn. I was a, a, a law student at Brooklyn Law School. And so she messaged me, it was just like, you know, I think what you're doing is so amazing. You look great. And I was like, it was right in the middle of final exams. I'm like, I'm studying for finals. Why don't we meet up after I'm done with finals? And so finished finals, we met up, uh, one thing led to another. And now we're married for over a year and we have an eight month old daughter. Congratulations! Thank you. That's a Thank gift. Of, that's a gift of sobriety. Yes, it's the it's the old the, the daughter. I mean, listen, I'm my wife, of course, but you know, now to be a, a sober father, um, I would say that is the number one gift. Uh, what do you, what do you tell guys uh, in 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 recovery in the rooms per se that they, that come up to you and ask you what they need to do to stay sober? How how can they get what what you have? So the first thing I had to do, especially at the beginning, is stop coming up with my own recovery and treatment plan. I thought that I knew exactly what I needed, and <laughs> I had no idea what I needed. I had no idea how to stay sober. So keeping an open mind and taking suggestions for the first year, don't try and make too much sense of it. If somebody with some solid time who has your best interest at heart tells you to do something, just do it. As I got into year two, now I'm starting to kind of filter out some things, you know, more of taking what I need and leaving the rest. And then I very slowly started building a life for myself that was worth staying sober for. And I had to enjoy the journey, the, the process of it all, where I set these goals for myself, realistic goals, 
And some of them are, are big long-term goals. Some of them are very short-term goals, right? Like just like, again, I talked about that morning routine, you know, making sure I'm going to the gym, I'm eating healthy, I'm, I'm being a good person, I'm helping other people. And, you know, you, you do all these things, you take it one day at a time. And all of a sudden, you're going to you're going to wake up one day, just like you woke up one day and you thought to yourself, how am I addicted to heroin? You're going to wake up one day and be like, wow, I can't believe I have this life. How do you do you ever get the, uh, the, the gambling itch? So the only I, I didn't really have or do a, you gamble today? I mean, I don't I mean, so I don't I never bet on sports. Okay. I think it was just a thing of me being a bookie and knowing that the house always wins. I, maybe it's just a simple math of it. I just never bet on sports, but I definitely, it was also different too, because like my money from being a bookie and a drug dealer, it like, it wasn't like real. I was about money. to say, yeah, it's not real. Yeah. It doesn't feel real. It's not real. And so like when I'd lose $10,000, like I didn't even like, like, yeah, I was so beyond enraged and upset, but like, it's not the same. And when you're stuck in that lifestyle and it's just money in, money out, it's just, it's all just, it's just all bad. It's all part of like the insanity. And so the only time I will gamble is if I go on like a vacation somewhere, like usually like a tropical vacation or something. And maybe I'll like, you know, play a, a few hands of blackjack every now and then. It's never been a problem for me. I don't have an itch for it. I sometimes, I got, I think my last trip, I don't even think I played my last trip. I want my wife to uh, the Bahamas and I didn't even play. Um, usually if, I, if I'm going with like couples and my friends, we'll go to the casino at night and you know maybe I'll play a little bit. But um, other than that, I don't gamble at all. I don't gamble on sports ever. I see that as a huge problem today that's not being addressed because of the mental health and substance use crisis. I think the gambling addiction and all the problems that are coming with that are kind of taking a back seat. But you know, it's, it's part of the lifestyle I, I do my best to stay away from it as much as I can, but it's not it it's not something I certainly I have like the itch for or like I have to be really on notice about. The substances, yes, that's a day in, day out thing. Like you said, we're not recovered. We are in recovery and which direction we're moving in is changing on a daily basis, depending right, on a couple my more action. things I'm gonna let you get out of here. The fentanyl crisis. I mean, it's 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 we're we're in the middle of a, a war, for lack of a better term. How how do you get through to the, the the youth of America that you get a chance to speak in front of so often that this is a fight for their life? So I just let them know that it, it is. You know, I'm I'm here to share a story. I'm here to share a message. I'm not here to talk at you. I'm here to talk with you. And I never liked the scared straight message. I hate just say no. Um, this is an image of your brain on drugs, you know, all the things that just really made, I'm not just fighting the stigma of addiction and substance use. I'm fighting the addiction, especially of school assemblies, <laughs> right? So they're so used to, yeah. I, I can tell you, like I, I, you should see the messages I get on Instagram from these students. Thank you. I usually lose interest in the first five seconds, but because of the way you did it, uh, we loved it. And I just went through some of these messages I got from students, um, with some of the coalitions I worked with today, but, um, it's. I say there's an exception to every rule and I am going to speak at you for a second. And the reason why the drug overdoses keep going up so much is because it is the most dangerous time in history to be using any substance because of fentanyl. 
Now, people are, you know, I got to give these students a lot of credit. They're pretty smart. You know, they think it through. And, and I have students, when I do breakout sessions in particular, you know, I do like a, a school-wide assembly. And then a lot of times I get to meet with students in smaller groups afterwards, like a Q&A open discussion. And a lot of times students will, will ask with like a confused look on their face, like, why are drug cartels lacing all these drugs with fentanyl if people are just dying from it? How do they make money from that? Isn't the object to make money and keep them addicted, not kill them? And they are correct. And, and here's the answer is not every substance is laced with a de deadly amount of fentanyl. Their intention is not for you to overdose and die, although that happens quite often. And it's so much cheaper for them to make fentanyl and so much more potent that the amount of profit they make off of one sale is so much more it's just so much more profitable for them that they are willing to write off your life as a business expense. That's how insane substance use is today. And so there really is no way of knowing unless you have fentanyl testing strips. And if you're at a point in your life where you need fentanyl testing strips to test your drugs, you might want to really rethink your situation and, and ask for help. Yeah, I laugh, but it's such a you know that's another thing too. And I like I, I like this about you. You're uh, you're about business. Um, you're about action, but also you have a sense of humor. You know, I think a sense of humor can get us through this recovery thing. Uh, ignorance will kill us. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hundred percent. Without without the humor, I mean, I don't I don't think I ever would have made it through. I would say that the number one piece of this that worked for me was camaraderie was going through this with my boys who I met in recovery. A lot of them were similar to me, very similar stories. And we would just rip on each other all the time, make fun of each other, not in a malicious way. I know I, I still make fun of myself to this day. I think it's just a, a coping skill. Like you gotta be careful about who you do it with. Like I can't joke about my addiction in front of my mom. Yeah. She means none of this funny yeah. ever. Yeah. So. My dad has a little more flex on it, but like my friends in recovery, you know, they'll, they'll say things like, especially like at some support groups. Like I heard this one guy, I don't even repeat what he said, but it was just, it was so, it was so dark, but at the same time you could see it was his coping skill. Mm. He said something so dark and we laughed at it. And then when someone got to sharing, they were laughing at the fact that, just picturing like a normal person in the room, listening to this person say this line, and then having us laugh at that. Oh, they'd be clutching their pearls. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, that's just how it is. Yeah, it's just yeah. how it is. It's a way for us to cope with it, to deal with it, and you gotta find what works for you. Yeah, I, yeah, I love, and I'll just wrap it up with this. I love how you mentioned the camaraderie because you, you, know, you being an athlete, I, been around sports my whole life. It's the best locker room I've ever I've ever been in in my life. It's my favorite locker room, and you've got to earn it. You know, you, mm. you've, you to stick around and to stay on that team, you've got to work every day, do your part, and uh, you can be a part of something incredible, bigger than yourself. Yeah. All right, Stevie, man, I thank you so much, Steven. I don't want to call you Stevie, but Stevie. No, you're good, man. Whatever. Yeah, we're we're getting on that level now. <laughs> yeah, dude, I appreciate it. I'll shoot you this link. It'll come out tomorrow. I'll put your website and I'll put the book in there. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, anything you ever need from me, just let me know, and we'll keep in touch. All right, sounds good, pal. All right, thanks a lot, Stephen. All right, talk to you soon. Appreciate, it, man. Thanks.
Oh, it's Allison. How about Stevie? He was good. Right? Yeah. Mom. Are you sure it works? Yeah, I'll call you back. Right, bye. I'm, bye. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.